This is not the small print of the gospel. This is not some hidden message in scripture. Jesus made it very clear that a decision to follow was a decision to die, to surrender everything to him. And so Jesus turns to the crowd and he turns to you and me and he asks the one question that will ultimately define our lives. Are you a fan or a follower? So we continue, we're in week four of the, of the Not a Fan series, and our passage today is out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, beginning at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's the word of God for all people. Thanks be to God. So we're going to talk about the cross this morning, and, uh, but before we get there, I've got a couple of questions for you. So if you get to choose between a Tempur-Pedic mattress and a box spring to sleep on, what do you choose? Tempur-Pedic mattress? Yeah, I, I think I would too. What about your favorite pair of tennis shoes or some wooden clogs? <laughs> no, you probably would choose the, the clogs. A weekend at a spa or camping in Death Valley at the hottest time of the year? <laughs> at the hottest time of the year. Yeah, I don't believe you. <laughs> yeah, prove it. <laughs> All right, so those are, are pretty easy to answer questions, right? It's, it, it's, it's uh, pretty easy to see which is the one that we would gravitate towards. See, the common denominator in all of that is a word called comfort. Uh, in our society, we, we place a pretty high value on comfort. 
there's a lot of money to be made on products that enhance people's comfort. Memory foam for our bed, Lazy Boy, I love that name, Lazy Boy recliners for our living rooms, body pillows, snuggies, and we even found a way to turn steel into wool for the kitchen. Yeah, because steel is... <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, we even have TV shows that, that exploit this idea of comfort. Anybody watch Dirty Jobs? It's a show that goes around and documents some of the world's filthiest, most uncomfortable, dirtiest jobs, and we sit on our couch and watch it and go, man, I'm glad that's not me. <laughs> but there is a danger in loving comfort too much. See, we've, as we've continued to put more and more of an emphasis on being comfortable, our faith has often followed suit with that. We've become Christians ac- pretty accustomed to comfort, like because we are in the in the winter. We expect heat, and in the summer, we do. Air, air conditioning is a, a, a big part of that. Our chairs are padded, at least I think most of them are. Um, even our Bibles are often are, are have a leather cover on them, so they're easier on the hands. Before you know it, though, it's not just the chairs that are padded. The messages often get padded with easy teaching and the doctrine becomes lifeless and eventually the message of the Messiah just becomes kind of moral code mush our passage that we're spending time with throughout every week is Luke 9.23 if anyone would come after me he must deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me so what do we do with that? what do comfort craving fans do with something like the cross it's pretty hard to avoid the cross when you're a christian right i mean we've got a cross over here we got a, a cross on the wall we uh, if if we looked at jewelry well, there's probably a few crosses around people's necks maybe some crosses dangling from from ears so what do you do with a phrase like take up your cross fans what they do is that they eventually find a way to make the cross comfortable. They create a comfortable idea of the cross and what it means today to take up our cross. So we have the phrase, we all have our crosses to bear, and we use that on any menial, uh, something that makes us, you know, it's an inconvenience, and we say, well, that's, uh, no, that's just your cross to bear. I didn't get the dinner that I wanted. Well, that's your cross to bear. You know, and the cross gets pushed back in our sermons, in our Bible studies. It only makes its annual appearance at, at Easter, right? It, get, it has prominence at Easter. And even though it's on our churches, our T-shirts, and around our necks, we can end up with this comfortable cross. And I know why that happens, right? Because the cross is a tough sell. We want people to come... T- to know Jesus. I mean, it's bad enough that Jesus had to die on the cross, but why do you have to go and insist that, that we all end up with our own crosses? It ruins our, our, our public relations effort. It hinders our ability to recruit new people. You're supposed to put your best foot forward. You want to draw people to Jesus. We want people to come to know Jesus. So we try to make Christianity sound as appealing as possible. But what have we sacrificed in return? 
Kyle Adam is going to tell Sometimes us a little bit in an about effort that. To get as many people as possible to follow Jesus, I have, with good intentions, made following Him sound as attractive, as appealing as possible. And so I've talked a lot about the unconditional joy, the peace that passes understanding, the grace and mercy that frees us from all of our guilt and shame. Those things are true and they are beautiful and they should be spoken of often. But I've realized that I have been guilty of selling Jesus. I've emphasizing only the parts about Jesus that I thought people would like. Imagine it this way. Imagine if my oldest daughter grows up and goes to college and after a number of years isn't married, but she really wants to be. And so I decide to help the process along. And I take out an ad in the newspaper and I put up a billboard sign and print up t-shirts begging someone to come and choose her. Wouldn't that cheapen who she is? Wouldn't that make it seem like they were doing her a favor. I would never do that. If you want to come and get to know her, you better come with everything you've got or I'll send you packing. Did you catch that? You better come with everything you got or I'll send you packing. Paul talks about the world, how the world sees the cross in our passage. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the very power of God, the cross. And for those living in the first century, the cross was the ultimate symbol of weakness. For many, then and now, the message of the gospel that God came to earth, took the form of a man, was crucified, buried, rose from the dead, is foolishness. I mean, we're making a pretty outlandish claim, right? That's why it requires faith. But the world sees that as utter foolishness. And it begs the question, why would God use a symbol of torture, death, weakness to save the world? Why would God do that? And I suppose for us, it's easier to look at the cross because we don't execute people on them anymore. But if a first century Jew were to walk through those doors and saw the cross over here and the painting of the cross over there, they'd get sick. They'd think that we were sick. I mean, imagine people walking in and seeing a guillotine or an electric chair. For the Jews, the cross meant weakness. But I think at the end of the day, that's God's point. That's what makes the cross so beautiful. God takes what, from the human perspective, is foolish. He chooses what has no glory, has no honor, the least likely symbol of love and life, and says, I'll use that. God takes 
what the world sees as demeaning and shameful and says, watch this, watch this, and turns it into the power of salvation. out of Corinthians 1.18. In verse 22, he goes on and it says, The Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. For the foolish, catch this, the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Who else but God could take a cross that represented defeat and turn it into a symbol of victory? He took the cross that represented guilt and turned it into the symbol of grace. The cross that represented condemnation and turned it into a symbol of freedom. It represented pain and suffering and he turned it into a symbol of healing and hope. It represented death and he turned it into the symbol of life. That's who God is. That's what God does. No one else could do that. Nobody could do that, but he can. What seemed like the ultimate moment of God's weakness was in reality the ultimate moment of his strength. And here's why that matters. And here's my one point for the day. Please, grab. I hope you get more, but if nothing else, grab hold of this. This is, this is the one, and it's, it, this is important wherever you are this morning. What God did for the cross, what God did for the cross, he can do for you in your life. What God did for the cross, he can do for you. It doesn't matter. We're imperfect people seeking and serving the one who is perfect, right? We know that we come here flawed. God takes that, and he takes those flaws, and he turns them into something impossible. God can do for the, what God did for the cross he can do for you. When you're, at, when you're at your weakest, you're exactly in a good spot because that's where God gets to be the strongest. The upside-down truth of the cross is that, that when you are weak, you are strong. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. It's not that God used the cross in spite of its weakness. He used the cross because of its weakness. He knew what it represented. And this is not new. God chooses weak things. Throughout Scripture, God continually chose the weak over the strong. Abraham was old, Jacob was insecure, Leah was unattractive, Joseph was humiliated, Moses stuttered, Gideon was poor, Samson was proud, Rahab was immoral, David had an affair, Elijah was suicidal, Jeremiah was depressed, Jonah was disobedient, Naomi was a widow, John the Baptist was eccentric to say the least, Paul was impulsive and hot-tempered, Martha worried a lot. The Samaritan woman had several failed marriages. Zacchaeus was unpopular. Thomas had doubts. Paul had poor health. Timothy was timid. You see a picture here? You see a picture here? It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you've gone through. God can use it. What he did for the cross, he can do for you. Seems backwards to us. Right? Backwards. 
When we think we're strong, we're really weak. Okay, thanks, God. But when we acknowledge our weakness and humble ourselves before the Lord, we will receive power and strength from the Holy Spirit. Paul, in his second letter to Corinthians, said, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in, for when I am weak, I am strong. Now, <laughs> I don't delight in when I am weak, just so you know. <laughs> I don't know anybody who does. Because, hey, guess what? Today I was really weak. <laughs> That's not the way that it goes. We go to great lengths, in fact, to disguise our weaknesses. Like when you're on a job interview, there's the dreaded question, right? Okay, so what's your greatest weakness? How do you answer that? Well, I know this much. You don't tell them the truth. <laughs> you don't tell them your weaknesses. Can you imagine it? Well, uh, you know, I'm never on time. I constantly procrastinate. I have trouble getting along with coworkers, and I don't even know how to turn on the computer. You know, that's not going to get you very far <laughs> in a job interview. You say something like, well, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. I tend to be a bit of a workaholic, you know, so I, I stick around more than I probably should. See, we do that because in our world, in our economy, weakness isn't strength. Strength is strength. So we have to present that. And there are thousands and thousands of self-help books out there who communicate one, one message, and that is that you can do it. You can do it. You have what it takes. Look deep and find the strength within yourself. And it's not that we don't have a part to play, but when we are weak, he is strong, and that's where our strength comes from as believers. Is that's, that's the place of true strength. Mason. Uh, it's one of my grandkids. <laughs> uh, when he was younger and he was spending an evening with us, uh, I was moving my guitar from downstairs to upstairs, and he said, I'll get that, Gramps. And being the ever-lazy Gramps, I said, have at it. So he grabbed hold of the guitar and began to move. And you have to understand, Mace was born three months early, one pound, 13 ounces. He was in the NICU for months. You wouldn't know that to look. If you saw the picture on Facebook, he's, one, he's six foot three inches tall. But he wants to show off how strong he is. You go. I'm going to let him do that. Now, I knew that he didn't have much chance to carry my guitar in its case up the stairs. He struggled with it for a bit. He was dragging it. Uh, I offered to help, but he said, no, I got it. I'll keep going. He moved a little further, and I, but I knew you can tell when they were beginning to run out of gas. And He started off strong, but he was struggling after a little bit. And with a heavy sigh, he stopped. He turned around, he looked at me, and he said, Gramps, this is heavy. And he set the guitar down. So I picked it up and began carrying it up the stairs. And so we walked up the steps together. See, I want to learn a lesson from Mason. I want to admit my weakness. I want to ask God to show his strength in my life. I want to be able to go, 
God, this is heavy. Because he'll come and he'll help me. And he'll pick up whatever the burden is and help me carry it up the stairs. See, I want God to do for me what he did for the cross. It's part of my my pride that I want to carry the load. I refuse to admit my weaknesses far too often. Even though I know that it is through that weakness that, that I am made strong. And that's a test for followers. We talk about the difference between fans and followers. Will we, like Christ did before us, trust God enough to let our weakness be his strength? Because it's when we let go of our need to control, our need for comfort, our need to glory in our strengths and our accomplishments or our paycheck or our trophies or co-workers' approval, whatever it is that keeps us from abandoning the idea of a comfortable version of the cross and embracing the reality of the cross in our lives. Because it's then that God does for us what he did in Christ's death. It's then that God moves in our hearts and changes our hearts that's how when he takes followers who are hanging by a thread, don't know how they're going to take the next step. I don't know how I'm going to make it. And he bolsters their spirit. Takes followers who are at their weakest moment and uses it for tr- enormous kingdom good. Followers who are all but de- defeated and turns their testimonies into life-giving messages of truth and hope. All for his glory. That's what he wants to do in our lives. What are we going to do about that? If you'll bow with me. Father, do for us what you did for the cross. Do for us what you did for the cross. Do for me this church, this city, do for this nation and this world what you did for the cross, that we might begin to understand why you chose such an uncomfortable means of self-sacrifice. Help us not to shy away, but to embrace who you have called us to be, and where you have called us to be. Lord, do for us what you did for the cross. Amen.